A night of underage drinking with a friend turned into a nightmare when the friend suddenly started having dreams that they committed a horrendous crime. It took a superstar lawyer believing in him to turn things around and turn him into a reality TV star. This is the story of Ryan Ferguson, the amazing racer who was falsely convicted of murder. Hi friends, I'm Katie, and this is Katie Does Crime. Now, I don't know if there's a big crossover between true crime fans and reality TV fans, but I love shows like Survivor, Big Brother, and The Amazing Race. And would you believe that the last season of The Amazing Race had a real, live, convicted criminal? Who was later exonerated, but whatever, I'm going for drama here. In the very early hours after Halloween 2001, local sports news editor Ken Heithold left his office in Columbia, Missouri. In the parking lot, he had a short conversation with a coworker who later described him as popular and a wonderful guy to work with and easy to learn from. That coworker drove off, but a couple of janitors came out onto the loading dock to smoke and noticed that Heitholt's car was still there. Two men emerged from behind the car, and one of them said simply, somebody's hurt. Heitholt was found there beside the car, beaten and strangled to death. On that night in 2001, Ryan W. Ferguson was a 17-year-old high school student out for Halloween with his friend Charles Chuck Erickson. The two went to a bar that just happened to be a few blocks from the scene of the crime, knowing they'd be allowed in by the bouncer despite their age. Charles did a little coke, and the two stayed and drank for maybe two hours, until 1.30 a.m. when the bar closed. Then Ryan drove his friend Charles home and went home himself. The end. But two years later... A tip came into police from friends of Charles that he'd been having memories, hazy and dreamlike, about the murder, as if he'd been there. When police questioned Charles, he said that the memories were foggy, that he could be making it all up. But he still tried to cooperate with their questioning because he thought the newspaper sketch of the suspect looked like him. And after all, he couldn't remember what happened that night. And finally, after hours of questioning, Charles admitted to what the police wanted him to say that he and Ryan had used the last of their drinking money and needed to rob someone to get more. He couldn't get the murder weapon right, but that's okay. The police were willing to feed him that information. None of the victim's blood was found in Charles's vehicle, and he didn't remember having any blood on his clothes, but who cares? Minor details. Charles said it had all been Ryan's idea. Of course. When questioned, Ryan said, I wasn't there. I did not do anything. You're trying to get me to admit to something I didn't do. Even after hours of interrogation, he maintained, I'm not lying to you, man. I was not there. But four years after the crime, in March of 2004, Charles and Ryan were both charged with murder. Charles took a plea deal of 25 years in exchange for testifying against his friend Ryan. And at the trial, his hazy, foggy, I don't remember most of what happened, original police interview turned into confident testimony of exactly what happened that night, including a demonstration of how Ryan was the one to strangle the sports editor with the man's own belt. There was evidence at the crime scene, hair in the victim's hand, fingerprints on the car, and shoe prints in the blood. One of the janitors out on the loading dock that night was even able to describe in detail the college-age male she saw. But absolutely none of this tied Ryan, nor even Charles, to the murder. But the district attorney was convinced by Charles's admission of guilt, and so was the jury, 
because the other janitor said he suddenly could remember what the men looked like that night once he saw Ryan and Charles's photos in the news. In the fall of 2005, Ryan was found guilty and sentenced to 40 years in prison. But Ryan's dad remained convinced that his son was innocent, and that Charles was too. He went to the scene of the crime 40, 50 times, sure that the police had garnered a false confession from Charles. And as luck would have it, superstar lawyer Kathleen Zellner was on Ryan's side too, and she was known for her work on wrongful convictions. You might know her from her work on the Stephen Avery Making a Murderer saga on Netflix. One day soon after she started working pro bono on Ryan's case, Charles sent a letter asking for her to visit him in prison. And it was there that he told her he had lied. He hadn't been able to accept that he'd committed the murder alone, so he implicated Ryan in order to ease his conscience. He even said that Ryan had attempted to stop him that night. Now, whether any of this was true, and if Charles was even there at all on the night of the murder was anyone's guess, but the important part was that Ryan's lawyer now had a new reason to appeal seven years later. In court, lawyer Kathleen Zellner questioned a police interrogator who said, be very leery of the voluntary confession, the person who walks in and says, I did it, because it's not typically what murderers do. He also believed that the police led Charles's confession, actually telling him things like, we know for a fact that he was strangled with his belt. Does that ring a bell? And Charles had answered, no, not at all. And yet they still accepted his confession and allowed him to implicate his friend at the original trial. And the eyewitness who said his memory suddenly started working and he happened to remember seeing Ryan and Charles by the car on the night of the murder, he admitted at the appeal all these years later that he was lying that it was the prosecutor who showed him the newspaper and said, it would be very helpful if you could help us with this by identifying them. The eyewitness had just wanted to do the right thing. It was also at this hearing in 2012 where Charles finally revealed that he doesn't know at all what happened on Halloween 2001, that he doesn't remember leaving the bar, let alone murdering someone with Ryan. On the stand, Charles said, am I telling the truth now? I'm telling you the truth now. Do I expect you to believe it? No, I don't expect you to believe it. And the judge didn't believe it. Ryan's conviction was upheld. A year later, Ryan was back in appeals court, this time with a judge who ruled that his original trial was unfair because evidence was kept from the defense. The prosecution had argued that the eyewitness was able to recognize Ryan and Charles from a newspaper article his wife had given to him. But his wife denied ever showing him the article, and the prosecution knew this, but they didn't share the information with Ryan's defense lawyers. And that, my friends, is a Brady violation. Two months passed while Ryan and his family waited for the court to make a decision, and then on November 5, 2013, the judges declared that Ryan Ferguson didn't get a fair trial and set aside his conviction. I'm an innocent man, and I hope the whole world can see it now, Ferguson told CBS almost 10 years after he was first questioned by the police. To get charged with the crime you didn't commit is incredibly easy. To get out of prison, it takes an army. Charles, the friend who basically put Ryan behind bars, said, It feels good, knowing that he's out. It really feels like my load has been lightened, and I hope he's able to do the things he wants to do. And Ryan really is. His Instagram profile reads, Lost 10 years of life to a wrongful conviction, making up for it every day. He's the host of Prison Counts, a podcast that goes behind the scenes of the criminal justice system. He flies planes with his dad and posts beautiful vacation photos with his girlfriend. 
and also abs, lots and lots of abs. And of course, there's a reason I got to know him, his appearance on the last season of The Amazing Race with his best friend who supported him through his conviction and imprisonment. I won't give away how they did, but it's great to see him out there living life to the fullest with his abs and his millions of wrongful incarceration dollars. The Amazing Race had to shut down filming during the COVID outbreak, and when the show returned after 19 months, Ryan told the host, I'm used to being locked down. I just transitioned straight back into the prison life. Oof. Charles Erickson is still in prison despite appeals from his attorney, and the Ferguson family has offered a $10,000 reward for tips that may help solve the case. Because, of course, the sad thing is that Ryan and Charles didn't murder Kent Heithold, but someone did. I've seen a lot of articles calling for the investigation of Michael Boyd, the co-worker who was the last to see Heithold alive in the parking lot. And I'm not accusing anyone of murder here, but here are a few points that FreeCharlesErickson.org has cited. One, Boyd gave conflicting information in his interviews that went completely ignored, like what exactly he was doing just after 2 a.m. when Heithold left the office. Was he in the parking lot talking to someone else? Was he already in his car, listening to a cassette? Two, Boyd also changed his story about which car he was driving that night, and the car he originally claimed to have been in has never been located that we know of. Boyd claimed that he traded it to a car rental agency, but that agency doesn't have the transaction on record. Three, Boyd was the high school sports and Columbia College athletics reporter for the newspaper where he and Heitholt worked, and high school and Columbia College basketball schedules were found under Heitholt's car the night he was murdered. Four, when Boyd got home that night, he immediately washed his clothes, changed into something else, and then went back to the newspaper offices a couple of hours later to observe the evidence being processed, where he says he saw Heitholt's body face down. But other employees had turned the body over when they originally discovered him, so Boyd couldn't have seen him face down at that time. Five, and lastly, Boyd admitted later that he and Heitholt had been in a bit of a tiff right before the murder over a major mistake Boyd had made at the paper. So while none of this is a smoking gun, it's enough that people felt the police should have investigated Boyd. There are unidentified fingerprints and a palm print and the hair that was in the victim's hand. And as far as we know, this information hasn't been collected from Boyd for comparison. The thing is, according to the newspaper where Heidhold and Boyd worked, Boyd idolized the victim and never would have heard him. And the two janitors who were eyewitnesses that night claimed to have seen two white men near the car, and Boyd is black. Whatever happened, it seems like it's fully possible and almost probable that this case will be solved someday with the evidence on hand. So we just have to wait and hope for now, for the sake of the victim. Thank you for tuning into my very first podcast episode. I'm just a true crime fan like you are, and I really appreciate you taking a chance on me. Please subscribe and tell a friend if you like spending this time together. You can also find me on YouTube in the flesh by searching Katie Does Crime. Until next time, I'm Katie, and this has been Katie Does Crime. <laughs>